You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. We see Jesus spending all night, all night in prayer. That's a long night. There's no house lights back then. He is out in the dark, likely praying his heart out to do what? To make a big decision. Who will be his 12 disciples? He maybe has 70, 100 people kind of following him around in the countryside, and he has to make a decision. Who will be these 12 disciples? And he names the list, and some of these disciples called apostles we know a lot about, but a lot of them we don't know too much about. And we're not really given any clear reason why these men were chosen versus other men were chosen, other than the choice of God. But we can learn three things from this little part of Scripture that we can apply immediately to our lives. And the first one is this, that the fact that there's these 12 men means that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. And this signals to everyone listening back then and us today that the people of God now are defined by their faith in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you belong to God. It's not what nationality you are. It's not what ethnicity you are. It's not what family you grew up in. It's not what language you speak. But rather, Jesus is inaugurating this new era era that salvation is by faith alone and the gospel is for everyone. Jesus is cross-culturally reaching out to every one of us in this room. None of you are Hebrew men living in Israel 2,000 years ago that he's reached out to us. The second thing is this, and related, that the plan for the people of God, the church, is to be united in Christ, but then diverse as people. These men didn't all have the same story or background or job or income. Some were lowly educated fishermen. Some had higher incomes. This one named Simon the Zealot, He was a political extremist. And by extremist, he literally would carry around his little group of people, carry around knives ready to knife people who agreed with Roman rule. He was so out on the Roman overlords that he was willing to murder people and with a team that would doing terrorism as a political strategy. It seems Judas may have also been in that group, but we know for sure Judas would be a traitor in the end. On the other side of the political spectrum, we got Levi called Matthew, the tax collector, who so was so comfortable with Roman rule, he was taking paychecks in the system. He had flipped on his own people to go work as a tax man for the Romans. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I pick you with with the violence, terrorism issue, and I pick you with the uh, going with the overlords, violence and terrorism on his own people issue. You both are in the club. We're going to get both of y'all together. I'm going to get highly educated and lowly educated. I'm going to get people from families of big reputations and people of family with no reputation. And I'm going to call you my disciples because here's the truth. Jesus isn't looking for a certain kind of person, but rather bringing all people to himself to find unity in Christ while they are diverse in who they are. And the third thing we see this, as we see Jesus laying down a beautiful example for us, spending a long time in prayer over a big decision is never a waste of time, fam. 
It sounds simple. It's the most simple application you could possibly think out of this first part of the passage, but it's so powerful because scripture tells us pray each day, praying the Lord's prayer, pray like this. First Thessalonians 5 says pray unceasingly, like never stop praying. And you're like, well, how do, I, how do I do that? Like, how am I like functional if I'm unceasing in prayer? For me, it just looks like small breath prayers to let you into the door of my heart and tell you what's in there. Man, my breath prayer is just, Lord, help me. I would just rather God's help in doing anything than acting like I'm gonna pull it off well. I would rather not trust in my skills or my character or my ability, but rather say, Lord, use these humble things and be with me, help me, whether I'm parenting my little kids or pastoring the church or driving my car or not getting frustrated at people driving their car crazy. Y'all been on 2059, right? A little free for all, good times. But what Jesus is saying, in addition to praying without ceasing, Jesus models here, it's a good idea to spend lengthy time in prayer over big decisions. Whether that's praying and fasting for years, or as the decision comes up, praying throughout the night. That that is a way to humbly say, I take you serious, God, of what you have to say in my life. I am listening. I'm submitting this to you so that you can walk into that decision full of confidence, not in yourself that you figured it all out, but that God is good and he is guiding you. That's where you want to be. Whether you're praying about the job opportunity or where to go to school or buying a house or picking a spouse or adoption or whatever it is, it honors God to give him your full attention. And for most of us, that takes more than a breath prayer, but it takes a whole space to set aside and say, you are God, I am not, and I'm here to listen, and here's what I got. That it's okay to clear out. First, we need to seek God's word in any matter. It's final. God's word is our first guide of what to do. Next, go to those godly friends, get their input, get their feedback, hear from people you really respect and admire. But in the end, take that big opportunity and have a beautiful moment before the Lord with an open heart that says your yes is a yes, your no is a no, your wait is a wait, and I'm here to listen, not tell you what to do, God. Ask in faith and receive heartily from God. And if Jesus needs to pray over the big decisions, how much more us? He's modeling the way, but he's also living the way. And what he's modeling is Proverbs 3. It's a favorite of many Christians. Take a peek. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Easy to say, hard to do. Do not lean on your own understanding. Consider the facts of the situation, but maybe you don't even know how to interpret all the facts because you're not God. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your pasture. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. We can convince ourselves into anything, but the surest way to live is to fear the Lord. Turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When you submit your decision-making to God, The goal is that over time, you would leave healed and refreshed over worried and anxious. This is what Christians, have you ever heard a Christian say, hey, I've submitted to God, I'm at peace with my decision going forward, no matter how it turns out. That's what it's talking about. That you're at a place of refreshment because you've met with God. 
and you're ready to go in to whatever, it's a negative decision or a positive one, you're just ready to go. And we see Jesus at peace. He just makes the choice. He's not worried. He's not anxious about who he didn't choose. He's not people-pleasing. Instead, the crowd shows up and Jesus confidently starts healing and teaching. Verse 19, and the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed all of them. Jesus rolls into the next phase of his ministry. Power is rolling out of Jesus. People are hearing his gospel. They're experiencing their healing in their life. But yet Jesus at this crowded moment actually gives a sermon to these 12 disciples. The text tells them he looks right at them and says, this is what is gonna happen in your life. This is what's next. And this is really a main block of Jesus's teaching. And what he addresses is what we're often concerned about. Jesus talks about happiness. Who doesn't want to be happy? That's what the word blessed means. Makarios, that's the Greek word blessed, just means deep happiness. When we hear blessed, we think like blessing the turkey at Thanksgiving or our favorite phrase in the South, bless your heart. But here it says happiness. And happiness is part of the American experiment. This idea that happiness can be sought. In our Declaration of Independence, we said it's an inalienable human right to pursue happiness. And in a less historical sense, we see it all over our culture. You were bombarded with it just driving in or looking at your phone today of the advertisements and slogans are rarely selling you an actual product. They're selling you happiness by means of the product. And I'll prove it to you because some are pretty obvious. Y'all ready? All right. Best Buy. Buyer be happy. <laughs> That is the slogan. Through technological entertainment, you can be happy for $500. Hit us. Zappos, delivering happiness. Who loves shoes? They open, they're fresh, they're clean. They're trying to deliver on happiness. What about Amazon? In 2000, they just put a smile right on there. Come to us. Results. Number four is maybe my favorite. Open a Coke, open happiness. I think this one's really powerful because what are they selling is brown, sugary, carbonated water. But they're saying, I want you to remember every time you're happy and hopefully there's happy moments you had a Coke in your hand. So buy the Coke so maybe you can get back. That's what you're being sold because they know deep the human soul wants to be happy. God created you for happiness. Take a look again. This is my favorite, big, beefy bliss. McDonald's cheeseburgers. I just love they drop bliss in the title. They're saying, hey, maybe this guy had a quiet time and wrote the ad. Maybe she just was like, you know what blessing this is? That quarter pounder. And then there's some that are a little more dubious. I, I don't know if this one actually works. Help yourself to happiness, that it's not the first serving or the second, but the third and fourth that get you there. But really, a lot of these are more subtle. They're more subtle. Look at this Honda ad. I know zero people 
who got all their friends to go buy a variety of new Honda vehicles and then drive across the desert. But every car commercial, suddenly you're out in the mountains or the desert doing who knows what, but the people are having a blast. And I know no one who's ever done this, but they're subtly saying your life could be better and fuller if you have a new car. Same thing with the State Farm ads. Love them. It's always handsome guys having a good time, maybe rich and famous. Something bad happens, but it's cool. You got State Farm. You're safe. You're comfortable. Happiness will be uninterrupted if you have good insurance. It's every ad. It's all State. It's all of them. That's what they're saying. Your happiness can't fail if you stick with us. And then last, there's the beauty, skincare, hair, and makeup industry. They never show a sad or lonely looking person. It's always Jennifer Aniston or Beyonce or J-Lo or Chrissy Teigen having the time of their life getting ready to go out. And it's all marketing, but they market this way because it works. Because everyone wants to be happy, and I don't meet a ton of people who are. The demand is, boy, I want to be happy. And they're trying to fill the supply that, yeah, you can be happy for a price. Every ad you see in life is like the little doors on the price is right. I love that show growing up. They have a curtain. You got to pick the curtain. You got to pick the door. And every ad is saying, try it. Maybe your happiness is behind it. Oh, try the next one. Try the next one. Try the next one. And if you've lived long enough, suddenly you've found that you've tried a lot of doors. Maybe you've changed your whole look. You've changed all of your friends. You've changed everything about your life. And it's just over and over. You keep trying the doors and trying your doors. And maybe high school ended and you're like, oh, I'm not an athlete anymore. So blah, 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 blah. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And you keep trying the doors until one of two things happens. Either you're exhausted and you give up. And you say, happiness isn't for me. Or you pick something shallow and just say, for me, it's ultimate. Bama football. If I have season tickets and I tailgate hard enough, I'll just be happy. If I get a boat. Some people even say, oh, the gym is my happy place. The gym is my temple. It's like, well, what if you like lost a leg and you can't go to the gym or like you were really sick? You just, you just done? You know, like happiness is now gone? Or maybe it's food. Maybe it's drink, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a feeling you get that someone likes you or loves you. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's just fill your life with distractions I'd rather not think about. Maybe it's likes on social media, maybe it's a band. I got a bunch of friends that toured widespread for years. But whatever it is, we tend to either give up or just give in to say, yeah, I'm happy enough. Why does happiness remain so elusive? Why does it seem just out of reach? Well, according to Jesus, it's because we're looking in the wrong places. Verse 20, Jesus lays out, these people are probably thinking, these guys are the disciples. What's their life going to be like? The disciples are like, oh, this is amazing. I get to follow a guy who heals people. We get excited about a job opportunity. I mean, these guys are following someone that's healing people. He says, actually, your life's going to be a lot like this. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples. The crowd's just here to overhear. He's speaking to his followers, to these disciples, really. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Not a lot of ads screaming that. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's a title for Jesus. As you follow me, when things go terribly, blessed are you. What can you do? Verse 23, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying that deep Macario's happiness isn't found out there in the world. Deep happiness is found in me, the author of life itself. So much so that even in difficult, even dire circumstances, I am still reason to call yourself to have happiness both in the future, but if the future is real, to have it in the now. He's not saying being poor is good. If you've ever struggled with poverty, it is not good. If you've ever been hungry or hungry growing up or maybe hungry now, it's not good. But if you have Jesus, there's a blessedness that you can be happy on the behalf that knowing that Jesus loves you and is with you and sees you and has a home for you, even as you work through the hardest things in life. These are not promises to fix our financial issues or promises to fix our hunger or promises to fix our pain or our difficulties in the life, but these are promises for the disciples and for anyone that follows Jesus now that you can be blessed, happy, knowing your future is certain with Jesus and that there's a God who truly loves you regardless of how the world treats you, regardless if you lose the rat race, regardless if you never even touch a new car. Because the ads lie. They don't love you. They just want your money. And in that way, Christians have an otherworldly happiness even about and in, uh, even in the difficult things without denying the pain. This isn't toxic positivity. We're like, it doesn't matter. It's all good. It doesn't matter. It's all good. Oh my gosh, they're annoying. That's toxic. Your attitude does matter what you bring into a space, but it doesn't, doesn't make your altitude. You can have a good attitude, that's great. It doesn't change the scenario. But here's the thing. In the scenario, you can have hope. And you can have a reality that God is God and you are not, and that's good news. That God does love you. And that does change everything. The disciples will live this out. They will be poor. They will be hungry. Their story is weeping. They are certainly hated. Most will die gruesome deaths. It's not gonna like go better. If you hear a gospel that says, follow Jesus and your life will just go great, that's a lie. You will be loved. You can be deeply happy, but your worldly life may go very poorly and very poorly indeed. We can rejoice now in our various sufferings as God uses them to strip us of our hopes in the world. When we go through pain and loss in this life, it is a stripping moment where it's saying, it's taking my hope out of these other things to learn to appreciate the good things in my life, but ultimately see my hope needs to be centered on Jesus alone, 
who's never leaving, never letting me down, even rose for the dead to be close to me. Our sufferings in this world make us yearn for a world where Jesus is king over all things. And Jesus is hinting to spiritual receptiveness here, too. The poor often are more receptive to the gospel because their hands aren't full of worldly riches. Empty hands usually lead to receptive hearts. Those who are hungry physically and spiritually know this world is cruel and it's not enough. And Jesus says they will be satisfied. To weep is wise, says Ecclesiastes 7. Look what it says. This is wild stuff. It is better to go to the house of mourning, a funeral, than to go to the house of feasting, for it is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. It's the wisdom of old brought to the new in Jesus. They sang full buffets, new cars, new shoes, great skin and hair, McDonald's hamburgers, and all the Coca-Colas in the world cannot change our eternity. And they can't make us happy for long week to week. True Makarios happiness is elusive as long as we're chasing it in the things of this world. It's an otherworldly religion we follow. It's an otherworldly Jesus who both created the world but is greater than the world and has overcome the world and is calling us. Look at the key in verse 22 and 23. Blessed Makarios are you when people hate you when they exclude you and revile you. This sounds terrible. And they spurn your name as evil. No one wants to be called evil on account of the Son of Man, on account of Jesus. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. What Jesus is doing, he's saying, you are like the prophets of old. You are like the prophets of old disciples as you step into following me. You are like the prophets of old as you become a follower of Jesus, that even if we're hated or despised for it, happiness is already ours. Because we have Jesus, the God who loves us, the one our soul really longs for, we can endure hard things. That Jesus is the king of this upside-down kingdom, and we join the prophets. The Old Testament prophets were always crying because their eyes saw the beauty of God in a broken world. The Old Testament prophets were often poor in the world because they had set their heart on riches not of this world. The Old Testament prophets were a hungry people for they wanted the Lord more than any other pleasure of life. Jesus says you're joining them. Be like the prophets in perspective that God matters most first, last, and always. And the experience of God is greater than anything this world can offer you. That you are made by God, but also made for God. You were made for God. Jesus says you are joining them. When Jesus is the hope of our happiness, we can leap for joy when we're excluded or hated. When you're excluded at work because you hold biblical views of human sexuality and you refuse to celebrate sinful behaviors in the workplace and you're excluded, you can rejoice, even if it means losing the promotion and not being eligible to go up the ladder. 
When you are hated by your family for following Jesus instead of whatever the family religion is, you can leap for joy because God sees you and your reward is great in heaven. When you're reviled for ultimately hoping Jesus instead of politics, you're blessed. When you stand up for what is right and your name is spurned as evil by some, you can leap for joy. Your hope isn't in, isn't in their evaluations of you. Because Jesus is king now and our reward actually is great in heaven. We can live for the applause of this world and chase an elusive happiness till we're exhausted. Or we can rest in the arms of our gentle Jesus and learn happiness in our poverty, in our hunger, in our sadness, and even in our hatedness. Christians still want to work to alleviate poverty, alleviate hunger, alleviate injustice, alleviate pain in this world, but we do it from the security of hoping in Jesus, not searching for happiness in this world. That makes us this ideal people to attack the world's problem because we're saying we have a hope beyond the problem. That even if we lose in our efforts of injustice, even if we lose in our efforts of relieving poverty, even if we lose in our efforts of stopping what feels like an onslaught of violence in our area, we still have a hope that's not that we're successful, but that Jesus has risen from the dead. And that we can help people with real needs and point them to a real hope, even if things don't get better in their lives or for our neighborhood, our city, or whatever it is. We have an eternal hope. And we are not fools to trust it or find our happiness there and work from that place. Amen? Amen. Jesus has brought us to an upside-down kingdom where the world's values simply no longer work. Where the blessed ones are the poor, not the rich, the hungry, not the full, the weeping, not the laughing, and the maltreated for Jesus is now cause for celebration. But Jesus warns us as well that to chase the world will mean to lose one's soul. This is kind of the long preview of what he will say in Luke 9, 25, where Jesus tells us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? And he describes these as woes. And a woe means great sorrow or misery. Listen to what he says. He flips what he just said. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you. That's the goal of our whole life for many. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus says these things, well, many of them good things, even promised things in heaven. He just said many of these things are promised in the future. But boy, they're deceptive in this world. These things cannot bring the good life or happiness in and of themselves. They can't give you makarios, but they can bring woe. It can be a wasted life, one filled with great sorrow or misery. 
Without Jesus, great riches, health, good times, popularity, great loves will never be enough. Those things stay this bottomless pit of you just need more and more to try to keep it going until you're exhausted. Riches fade and deceive, and they often cause as many problems as they solve. Good health will end. Beauty will fade. Athleticism has limits. Time passes, and sin deteriorates us in every way. The good times will stop, and the great loves will end too. Popularity and fame is a fickle master. It's a roller coaster without a seatbelt. Ask any influencer of this generation how quickly the tide turns on them. Life lived for the temporary, lived with ourselves at the center, leads to an empty future without God. Life lived in the temporary, with us at the center, will lead to an empty future without God. The only true happiness. The Old Testament fills us with stories of false prophets telling people what they wanted to hear and being celebrated for it. But in the end, the false prophet faces the judgment of God and leads others to ruin. And it's easy to live this false prophet lifestyle to buy the advertisement because we live in an echo chamber of our culture. That back and forth, we're encouraging each other down a path that will lead off a cliff. It's after children in the marketplace singing together, aren't we great? Let's buy more. Aren't we great? Let's get new. Aren't we great? I think I'm happy. How about you? And it's easy to get stuck in the vortex. I know I do. I know, I know when I, I shared this before, maybe a couple years ago, I went on vacation to Destin. I, we rented an Airbnb, a couple blocks off the beach. I found out the Airbnb was, was really like half a trailer with some paneling, like stapled onto it. Our kids had a blast. We had fun. We don't care. We walked to the beach. But it got tougher to walk that quarter mile after millions upon millions of dollar house after house after house after house after house after house, beachfront, those houses even bigger, and then have a moment of like, am I living my life wrong? Because I'm like renting a trailer out there in the woods. And if I'm living for another kingdom and another world that Jesus is king, then I'm living right. They're living for something totally different. And riches, if anything, are deceptive. They can lead you to a path of great destruction. A Christian can be rich and godly. That's okay. But man, it's tough to follow Jesus and be rich because it's so seductive. Don't take my word for it. That's Jesus, as he tells the rich young fool in just a few chapters. Jesus is the source of the happiness you're looking for. We can be happy in difficulty with Jesus. But fam, you already know it in your bones. The world's answers for your happiness will come up empty. I was on a cruise ship not too long ago. My mom bought us a cruise. It was so fun. Totally cool with our kids this age. And they have this huge casino full of lights and sounds. And you kind of have to walk through it. They make sure you have to walk through it to kind of get places. And you're walking through it. And you just see people just pulling the slots forever. I didn't see anybody win. We walked through it over and over. No wins. And what it reminded me is like, that's what we're doing. 
might not be a slot machine, but what's your lever that you just keep pulling? Hopefully one time you'll be happy. Is it riches? Is it pleasure of being full? Is it a relationship? Is it seeking someone's approval who doesn't even know? Is it at work? What's your lever? And are you willing to walk out of the lights and sound, this, the fake lights and sounds of the casino and see the beautiful sunset that awaits just out the cruise window? People are in this cramped, dark space full of smoke and light, artificial. They could walk outside and see dolphins playing around at sunset on a blue sea they've never seen in their life, probably. How else would we see it but a ship? Let's not pick the lever, fam, but let's trust Jesus for a true happiness that can start now, but will end in great reward one day.